Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then the Spirit led Jesus up into the wilderness so that the devil might tempt him. After Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was starving. The tempter came to him and said, Since you are God's Son, command these stones to become bread. Jesus replied, It's written, People won't live only by bread, but by every word spoken by God. After that, the devil brought him into the holy city and stood him at the highest point of the temple. He said to him, Since you are God's son, throw yourself down. For it is written, I will command my angels concerning you, and they will take you up in their hands so that you won't hit your foot on a stone. Jesus replied, again, it's written, don't test the Lord your God. Then the devil brought him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said, I'll give you all of these if you bow down and worship me. Jesus responded, go away, Satan, because it's written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The devil left him and angels came and took care of him. When was the last time that you were truly tempted? Now, I'm not talking about that feeling you get right now every time you go to the grocery store and pass that giant Halloween candy aisle. Now, I'm talking here about real temptation where you know in your soul that something is wrong and it can lead to nowhere good, but you still just want to do it so darn badly that you can feel sweat breaking out. I think we can probably all agree that Jesus was and is a better person than any of us. He was no doubt above the petty temptation to turn off the porch light and keep the Reese's to himself. But according to the people who knew him best, Jesus was not above real, soul-ringing, blood-sweating temptation. So here's an interesting question. What exactly tempts the world's most perfect person, God incarnate in human flesh? Well, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the devil, the embodiment of evil itself, confronts Jesus with three temptations. You know these temptations really are tempting to him because they don't just come up this once. They will keep on showing up, dogging Jesus to the last hours of his life. Not only that, but if you read the Gospels, the people around Jesus are continually falling to these same temptations. I think it's fair to say these are the temptations most likely to derail a person from participating in the kingdom of God. The first thing that evil says to Jesus is, command this stone to become bread. But the real problem with this temptation is it doesn't even sound bad at all. And Jesus is really hungry. People need food to survive. It's the most natural thing in the world to think, Jesus, take care of yourself. It's only right to provide yourself a meal. 
Well, just a couple chapters later in Matthew 6, Jesus is going to talk directly with his followers about the anxiety most of us feel around how we'll eat, drink, generally provide for ourselves. It's probably not surprising that this comes up because everybody who follows Jesus has already left something behind. A fishing boat, a house, a job as a tax collector, the support and approval of their family. There's virtually no story of following Jesus in the Gospels that doesn't involve substantial risk. It's also true that many of the people who choose not to follow Jesus make this choice precisely because they're unwilling to leave their stuff behind. Jesus tells his followers during this conversation in Matthew 6, my friends, there's no problem with wanting bread. God knows you need food to survive. God cares about the needs of God's servants. You won't be let hung out to dry. Jesus is speaking to his disciples from experience here. After all, in Matthew 4, after the temptations, God sent angels to provide for him. The real temptation of the bread is not that bread is bad. The temptation is how preoccupied we become with it. We end up spending our days thinking and worrying about where our next meal will come from. Our whole life becomes an effort to secure our own futures, to provide for ourselves. We miss what God is doing. We miss the kingdom. We miss the chance to participate because we're so busy bringing home more bacon to fill our freezer stockpiles. Speaking for myself here, this temptation is real. There's one part of me, the higher part of me, that senses the call to God's kingdom and its risks and its radical generosity. But there's another little voice always whispering in the back of my head, what about you? How will you be provided for? There are two answers to this temptation. The first is to trust in the goodness of God. God may ask us to endure hunger for a time, but God will never abandon people who offer their lives for kingdom service. The second answer is another reminder that life, really living, is more than, a, having, is more than about having a meal. I want to participate in the kingdom God is bringing. I want to be a part of something big and incredible with my life. And that means letting my choices be guided something by more than my fears for bread. Next, the devil, the embodiment of evil, takes Jesus up to the highest point of the temple and says, throw yourself down. After all, doesn't the Bible say that God will send angels to rescue you so you won't even scratch your foot on the ground? Evil has gotten significantly more subtle in the second attempt. The temptation here, to describe it simply, is to avoid suffering. The Bible, the devil even has Bible verses to back up his argument. Jesus, you're God's son. God loves you. There's no way that God would ever want you to be harmed. Is the devil right in his religion? Well, on the one hand, God is not the author of suffering. God is the author of life and flourishing and deliverance and wholeness. God doesn't desire the suffering of anyone. 
But on the other hand, God often does desire other things, other good things that require passing through the valley of suffering in order to get them. We all hate suffering and want to avoid it. This is a quality Jesus shared with us. That's why the night before his crucifixion, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane begging God to spare him this cup of suffering. But sometimes the coming of God's good kingdom, the accomplishment of God's good purposes, requires suffering to be birthed. This is why Jesus says that anyone who wants to be his disciple, to be a part of his new kingdom project, must take up their own cross and follow his. There's one thing that evil is right about. There is an out for Jesus. He can call on God's angels, protect his feet, avoid the worst suffering. And the reason for that is that God is not violent. God will not coerce. The only sacrifice that God accepts is the willing variety. Jesus can say, no, it's too hard. But God's redemptive work cannot be done without his willing participation. Sometimes suffering is required in order for love to accomplish its work. There may be times in following Jesus when the road is hard when we're tempted to cut and run. It's important to recognize that God will not force us. We really do have a choice. But the work of redemption, the coming of God's kingdom, earth as it is in heaven, requires sacrifice willingly given. And not just from Jesus, from his followers too. He made this clear. He is making a call for warriors just of a different kind than the world looks for. Warriors without weapons, who are courageous enough to look their own suffering in the face and to refuse to be deterred by that suffering from the work of healing until God's kingdom comes. Once subtlety has failed, evil swoops in for one final attempt. The third temptation lacks any subtlety at all. I used to read the story and think, how are we even supposed to take this seriously as a credible temptation? Of course, bowing down and worshiping the devil is a terrible idea. But I've since come to understand that this third temptation is the most powerful one of all. The devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth in their glory. Look, Jesus, there's Sedan. Uh, they're having a really hard time there, Jesus. I mean, imagine how great Sedan could be if you were in charge of it. And there, there's Venezuela. Whew. You've seen the headlines, Jesus. Think how much better things would be there in Venezuela if you were getting your way, way there. In America. Just imagine how good the world would be, Jesus, if you established your reign of justice and peace there. point one for the devil. I mean, he isn't wrong. All of these places would be better if Jesus was in charge. 
(laughs) and not just better. Suffering could be ended. Countless lives could be saved. Justice could be perfectly established. The end goal of Jesus ruling the nations could be nothing but good. But this temptation, this final and greatest temptation, is about the means. Jesus, that future, you ruling the nations, that's exactly what God wants. You can make the whole world as God desires it to be. All you have to do is take my hand and let me help you get there. Uh, Sure, you may not love my methods, but isn't an end goal that great worth a little compromise? This is the real temptation that has Jesus sweating bullets in the Garden of Gethsemane. It isn't just a temptation to run and save his own hide. He knows he has the means at his disposal to bring God's kingdom in today. The crowds have already hailed him as king. He's surrounded by disciples who are currently packing heat and itching for a battle. Angelic armies would answer to him. They could drive out Rome by force and bring God's kingdom to Judea. From there, they could spread out, take one nation at a time until the whole world is subdued under Jesus' rule. But there, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus rises off his knees. He gestures to his followers' swords and he says to them, Enough of this. Put those things away. Then he lets himself be arrested and led away. This is Jesus' final no to evil's greatest temptation. He will not use the devil's weapons, even with the world at stake. Is Jesus crazy? No, he's just seen through evil's ultimate deceit. You cannot bring God's kingdom using the devil's means. Any kingdom built by force or coercion will fall by the same. God's kingdom must come another slower, costlier way. With the conversion of hearts and minds, with voluntary pledges of allegiance, won by true love and willing sacrifice, Any other method and the victory is hollow. All you've won is a new playing ground for evil. It isn't just the first disciples who fall to this third temptation. The Christian church has been deceived again and again in every corner of the world. Each generation is convinced that because their cause might be just and their ends might be good, the means are justified. If we can just topple this tyrant or seize that throne, take the reins of power for ourselves, God's kingdom will finally come. But it doesn't, and it won't. God's kingdom will never advance through force or coercion, through territory taken by armies, or even through laws enforced by weapons. That is evil's game. 
And Jesus demonstrated the, demonstrated the alternative when he surrendered himself and he spread his arms wide and he gave his life for the love of friend and enemy. This and this only is what true power looks like. This and this only is how God's kingdom comes. Imagine the church in 2020 finally finding the courage to stare evil in the eye and say, no, we've seen through your lies and we are done with your games. Imagine a church with the courage to actually follow Jesus, to lay down our weapons, take up our cross, and give our lives willingly for the love of neighbors and especially for the love of enemies. Brothers and sisters, the time has come to call the devil's bluff, to choose the weakness of the cross and the hidden power of resurrection. This and this only is how the new world starts. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are humbled by this story of you wrestling with real gritty temptation. We confess individually and together we have fallen and we have failed where you have where you stood firm. Jesus, we have been so preoccupied with providing for ourselves. We have been so mistrustful of your generosity that we have failed to participate in the opportunities you've given us to truly seek your kingdom first. We confess that the path of walking with you, the the real path of love, has sometimes taken us to places of suffering And we've said no, we've turned around and walked away because it was too hard. We've missed, we've declined opportunities to share with you in the birthing of something beautiful um, because we were afraid of the pain that preceded the birth of that new thing. Lord, we confess that individually and together we have especially fallen to this third temptation that got your first followers flat off their feet. The temptation to think that if we seize the reins, if we seize control, if we press the right buttons or pull the right levers or get the right people in the right spots, that somehow we can make the world as you desire it to be. Lord, we confess how short we've fallen and we recommit ourselves to your grand kingdom vision, to a new world of justice and peace. We recommit ourselves also to the method you have chosen, proclaimed with your words, modeled with your life. A kingdom that is built through voluntary allegiance, through radical love, and through willing self-sacrifice. 
Show us what it means here, now, this week, in the weeks in front of us to lay down our swords, to take up our crosses, and to truly follow you. In the name of Jesus, mighty Jesus, whose kingdom we look for, we pray. Amen.